to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lupman, and as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we're talking about the Soviet Union's victory over fascism in World War II today and the U.S. spin to demonize Russia and further legitimize modern neo-fascism, the surprise abdication of Sri Lanka's prime minister and its implications, the connection between U.S.-NATO imperialism in Africa and the conflict in Ukraine today, and later in the show, starting at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time, we'll be opening the phone lines to you, but before we can move on, it seems that corporate media has gone even farther to legitimize this imperialist U.S.-EU-NATO proxy war in Ukraine while I was away. In Cuba, by the way, celebrating a momentous International Workers' Day, or May Day for short. Now it seems that U.S. politicians are openly calling the dangerous quagmire in Ukraine a proxy war, but putting a spin on it that's even more terrifying. Driving in this morning, I heard Amy Goodman on Democracy Now! report that some U.S. politicians said on Fox News that Ukraine is a proxy war that the U.S. must win. Well, look at that. All it took was a week for the imperialist war machine and its proponents to adopt the language of the left opposition and turn it into a good thing for them. And honestly, I kind of blame so-called leftists for this, because if there had been a clear and unified line among us about Ukraine, not just since February this year, when Russia finally responded to eight years of U.S.-EU-NATO-backed civil war against mostly ethnic Russians in the Donbass, Lugansk and Crimea regions in Ukraine, but we on the left needed to be a lot more clear and resolute about the expansion of NATO before now, as well as U.S. proxy wars, regime change, and other covert democracy-destroying actions in other countries long before Ukraine. But since the Iraq war, the anti-imperialist left has seemed to me to be dwindled down to just the anti-war left, who is okay with a little imperialism if war is fought to defeat an enemy, the very imperialist state that started the conflict says has to be defeated. Now, I want to be confused by this. I almost want to be defeated about it. But I'm just too sure that a better world is possible because I just came from revolutionary Cuba and there is no way not to think a better world is possible when you've seen that it can be done. It has been jarring, though, coming back to the U.S. where the confusion about who the aggressor in this conflict is is so profoundly deep and expansive among so much of the population, but particularly the alleged left. Jarring because in the closing session of the May Day celebration, Cuba's foreign minister Bruno Rodriguez Padilla made clear that Cuba is in solidarity with other countries that are the targets of U.S. imperialism and the efforts to destroy people-focused left movements in them, countries like Bolivia, Nicaragua, Brazil, Venezuela. Then the country's president, Miguel Diaz-Canel Bermudez, reiterated that solidarity with those countries and added emphatically that Cuba is also in solidarity with the demand by Caribbean nations through CARICOM for reparations for the global human trafficking crime against humanity and lifted up Haiti in particular. Now, for me, 
That was a uniquely hopeful moment in the coalescing of left forces around the world to recommit ourselves to the fight against imperialism. I felt like we were giving our marching orders from the political and ideological leaders, arguably, of the country that continues to defend its revolution against U.S. imperialism and aggression to unite in solidarity to defeat imperialism for all humanity, not just to focus on ending the blockade against Cuba, because it is imperialism that ties all oppressed peoples together. So it is the defeat of imperialism that will bring about peace and justice for all humanity. Not that some of us needed those marching orders, mind you, since many of us were even in Cuba on May Day because we are not just anti-war, we are anti-imperialists. And we understand that it is imperialism that is the primary contradiction, the one connective tissue that causes all of our oppression and injustice the world over. But as hopeful as that moment was for me, it was lost on some in the May Day delegation who still believe that ending the blockade against Cuba is the primary goal and the repression of all those other people, especially Caribbean nations. Well, you know, dealing with that can come, I don't know, later. Now, that's a whole nother discussion on why it's easier for some on the left to be in solidarity with Cuba and Nicaragua and Bolivia and Venezuela than with nations full of African descended peoples. I won't get into that mess here because it is a very telling mess. But that's not what the leaders of the revolutionary government of Cuba said. And the disconnect is typical of U.S. left politics, and I believe at the center of why we have been bowled over by this finely tuned, hyper-sophisticated propaganda machine in the U.S. that has now co-opted the term proxy war as something good that the U.S. must win. This well-oiled propaganda machine that has turned neo-Nazis in Ukraine into non-issues and that has reduced the former Soviet Red Army's defeat of Nazi Germany into a crossed-out footnote in history that we're now told doesn't mean what we think it means. Today, a Ukrainian organization paid for a gigantic billboard in Times Square in New York City that turns Russia's Victory Day celebration of the defeat of the Nazi army on May 9, 1945 and their subsequent liberation of the concentration camps into Russia's Shame Day. And they got little to no resistance from the corporate media, of course, but far too little resistance from the U.S. so-called left. The Ukrainian organization behind the billboard, by the way, is the Ukrainian World Congress, which is funded by the fascist organization of Ukrainian nationalists. Yes, whomever approved that billboard just took a whole fascist organization's money and helped them rewrite the Soviet Union's victory over literal fascists as something Russia should be ashamed of. I would give up in the face of all this. If I hadn't seen what little Cuba has continued to do since 1959 in the face of a brutal, criminal, genocidal blockade against its people, I would give up had I not met Janice, a member of the Committee for Defense of the Revolution in her neighborhood in Cuba. At the evening block party they threw for us, I asked her what she would say to U.S. citizens who believe that all the outpouring of support for the government in Cuba is forced. Janice said that the people in her neighborhood live together like a family, and it looked that way to me. And she said the people in Cuba live together like a family, and largely it looked that way to me. What we want, she said, is to live with the whole world like a family. But first the world has to deal with imperialism, 
She said the revolution in Cuba is strong and cannot be defeated by U.S. false propaganda or a 60-year blockade. If we on the left in the U.S. want to end the blockade against Cuba, end the repression of left movements in the global south, want to end the repression and exploitation of Africa, and want to bring about justice for nations looted in the global human traffic and crime against humanity and achieve justice in this country, we must also not be defeated by the U.S.'s false propaganda. We must recommit and redouble our efforts to defeat imperialism, because that is the primary contradiction for all of us, and its demise is the only hope for humanity. The revolutionary Cubans told me so. And those are today's talking points, and you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, sitting in for Sean Blackman, and as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movement shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on, as they say, and we are happy to be joined by Margaret Kimberly, editor and senior columnist at the Black Agenda Report and author of the book Prejudential, Black America and the Presidents. Margaret, thanks so much for joining me. Oh, it's great to be back. It is great to have you back, particularly on today, as we are marking the occasion of Victory Day uh, that is commemorated by Russia, um, and it commemorates the victory of the former Soviet Union, the former Red Soviet Red Army, in defeating literal fascists in Nazi Germany in World War II. But, Margaret, the media spin about this day and Russia's celebration of uh, their country's defeat of uh, Nazi Germany in 1959 has taken on a really, not perplexing, but it really is a sinister spin where people are using uh, the current uh, military action of Russia in Ukraine and kind of making Russia out to be the the aggressors making them you know the bloodthirsty monsters and 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 it, you know the propaganda is really far reaching so i'm wondering if you can give us a little bit of historical background into why it is so important and noteworthy that russia celebrates their uh victory over nazi germany in 1959 on this day in particular, as this proxy war in Ukraine uh, rages on. Yes, 45. I know I know you know that, but you said 59. Oh, I'm so but sorry. But anyway, that's okay. So the most important thing for people to know is that the war in Europe was won by the Red Army. Uh, we're taught so much about um, uh, D-Day, 6th of June in 1944. Well, by that time, the Soviets had been fighting the Germans for three years already. They had been fighting the Germans since 1941. And despite many pleas from Stalin to 
uh, Roosevelt and Churchill, they stood by and let the Soviets do most of the fighting for most of that time. Now, I, I realize there was some fighting in Southern Europe and uh, Italy and Greece and places, but by and large, it's fair to say that it was the Soviets who won the war in Europe. Now, May 8th is, uh, uh, we call that Victory in Europe Day, VE Day. Uh, but by the time it was official with the time zone difference, it was May 9th in Moscow. And uh, Victory Day is huge. Still in uh, Russia, the Soviet Union suffered uh, more losses than any other country, 27 million people. So obviously, this is a huge event for people there and for Russians, no matter where they live in the world. I saw a tweet uh uh, a Victory Day celebration in Israel, where many Soviet Jews went to live. Here in New York City, there are uh, Victory Day celebrations. Uh, this has been turned uh, into, uh, twisted, uh, in order to confuse people about what's going on in Ukraine. Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union, but many Ukrainians were collaborators with Germany. That is just a fact. And there was something uh, very interesting and uh, funny today. Apparently, President Zelensky posted on his Instagram. He was trying to post something about Victory Day, and he showed a picture of a Ukrainian soldier. But the soldier, like many Ukrainians, was wearing the insignia of a Nazi unit. And... Um, they deleted it, but, you know, this is what happens uh, that on the Internet. Everything lives forever, right? You can't delete fast enough. Right. So that is an indication of um, the confusion they're trying to sow in order to get buy-in for uh, keeping the war going in, uh, in Ukraine. Uh, this is now the war is pretty much lost. Uh, everyone who is knowledgeable, everyone I have checked with whose opinion can be respected on military issues, agreed that it is highly unlikely that Ukraine can win a military victory. They are winning the propaganda war because corporate media are um, uh, they're basically State Department spokespeople, and this is true throughout the supposedly democratic West where they deplatformed, where they've kicked off RT, where it's hard to find anyone easily um, uh, who can be truthful about uh, what's happening there. So they're lying. It is the biggest lie I can remember in my lifetime. Last week, Biden announced another $33 billion for Ukraine, that is to say, for the military-industrial complex. And if people knew that Ukraine was losing, they would say, well, wait a minute, why are we giving $30 billion for a lost cause? So the, the, um, we're being told that Western governments are sending military equipment. Well, if your army's being destroyed, it still doesn't help very much. A lot of these weapon systems are complicated. You can't get one on Monday and use it on Tuesday. It can take weeks or months for troops to be trained. Meanwhile, their military is being de degraded very methodically. Um, by uh, Russia. But in order to get buy-in, you have to make the Russians the bad guys. So even though, and I, yes, it was a marriage of convenience, even though the Soviet Union was America's ally during World War II, 
and uh, played such a huge role in uh, the victory, now you have to say they're the bad guys. And Ukraine, many of whom were collaborators, um, you've got to make them out to be the good guys. And some of them are still uh, linked to this collaboration. So this group... uh, uh, Unite, or they're on Twitter, Unite with Ukraine. They're calling it Russian Shame Day instead of just staying out of it because most Americans didn't know anything about Victory Day. So after all these months of saying, no, no, it's not true, there's no Nazi influence in Ukraine, what are they doing? They're showing their Nazi uh, influence by trying to uh, undermine the respect that uh, those people who do know this history still have for Russia in this regard. And, you know, Margaret, it's interesting that you mentioned that, uh, you know, most Americans didn't even know uh, about uh, a Victory Day uh, for Russia and in Russia and among Russian people. The reason I think I, I was thinking of the Cuban Revolution, which happened in 1959, uh, and I'm thinking about it's, it's still in my mind, the fact that the foreign minister of Cuba and the president of Cuba mentioned the proxy war in Ukraine. And they were very clear about who the aggressors were. And they brought up, you know, this this history of Russia having to once again fight against neo-Nazis. Well, this time neo-Nazis, but having to once again fight against fascists and how the imperialist West being led by the U.S. is turning uh, neo-Nazis in Ukraine into poster boys for uh, and and poster girls replete with cute kitties, uh, little cats, you know, posing in battle, turning them into poster boys and girls for this false democracy that is really just U.S. imperialism. So it, it was interesting that in Cuba, the connections were made to the erasing of the history of anti-imperialist, anti-fascist struggle that uh, Russia, uh, the Soviet Union, was involved in in 1945. And it's the same thing. It's the same thing that the Cuban government was or, or the Cuban revolution fought against in 1959. And here we are in 2022 having to explain to people why Nazis are bad. And <laughs> We're having to explain to people because outlets like the Washington Post and the New York Times really have gone into overdrive to frame everything Putin says about this very real history from World War II about the defeat of Nazism as some twisted, nefarious, made-up, cockamamie plan or plot that he has in his mind that isn't based in any kind of reality. So, I mean, in this speech, Putin said, Margaret, that uh, that it is absolutely unacceptable, uh, the threat that was systematically created for us, for Russia, and right next to our, our borders. And he's talking about the NATO alliance uh, and their uh, expansion of NATO. He said everything said that a clash uh, with the neo-Nazis that were supported by the U.S. and its junior companions would be inevitable. But I think the key here is, Margaret, that everyone and everything in the world that is not aligned with the U.S. government has been saying that. Because this was clear 
among those non-aligned countries and their representatives uh, in Cuba. And when I went to Venezuela, it was clear there. But it, it is absolutely not clear. It's as clear as mud here in the U.S. and the Washington Post and the New York Times are um, complicit in muddying those waters. Yeah, muddying the waters is an understatement. They're lying. They're lying on behalf of the state. And uh, in order to get public support for something that's blown up in their faces, uh, you know, the Biden administration had a, a plan to instigate something in eastern Ukraine. And uh, despite their predictions, a constant prediction about a Russian invasion, this is, I believe, this is not what they thought was going to happen. Uh, but they are, they keep digging, and there's a way to end this, which is just to end it. You know, wars can end with if somebody wins, and they can win, and they can end if they, people talk and decide to stop fighting. Uh, but when Zelensky agreed to some concessions, the first thing they did, what do they do? They send uh, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson over to tell him in person that you're not going to do that. And to keep this, to use Ukraine as a proxy to try to harm Russia. So that means they have to keep lying about Russia. They've got to lie about their own history. That's part of our history, uh, the uh, alliance with the Soviet Union in World War II. But now it all has to be thrown out in order for them to promote their agenda, which, and people talk about standing with Ukraine, then you should be advocating that the war end. Uh, instead, people there are suffering. People all over the world are suffering. And they can't damage Russia, weaken Russia, contain Russia, uh, sanction Russia without harming the whole world. So if you sanction Russian oil and gas, what happens to fuel prices? They go up all over the world. And there are people throughout the global south, people who can hardly afford it, who are now uh, suffering because of this um, of this uh, ill thought out uh, plan that they have, but they won't give up. Um, their goal is to just shut people up. That's why they're always going on about disinformation and deplatforming and censoring. Because if people knew what was really happening, they would rise up against it. And that is. Um, and that's why we continue to get lies about the present and lies about the past. Yeah, particularly something struck me in this uh, Washington Post article that I that I found. I, I don't know why I found this more unnerving than everything else. But uh, apparently there has been a ban in Ukraine uh, since 2017 on uh, displaying an emblem of uh, the Russian army's victory or the Soviet army's victory over Nazi Germany, and that is the St. George's Ribbon. So apparently what happened uh, recently in Mariupol, uh, the separatists or the, the uh, Donetsk People's Republic unfurled a 984-foot banner of the banned St. George's Ribbon. And, of course, this, you know, was met with, uh, you know, pro-Russian uh, uh, outlets being uh, hacked and, uh, you know, pro-Russian uh, uh, activists and, and uh, uh, fighters, actually, who have, remember, have been fighting against the Kiev army in a civil war for eight years, more repression against them— why is this banner so important that the Ukrainian government banned the ribbon in 2017? 
Well, they've done more than ban ribbons. They have removed monuments. Monuments to the Soviet Union have been pulled down. This has been going on since the U.S.-backed uh, coup regime came into office in 2014. They've banned socialist parties. They've banned the hammer and sickle. They have banned the letter Z. The, the Russians are using the letter, which is interesting to me because Russia has no Z in its language. But at any rate, the letter, our letter Z has uh, become this symbol of uh, the Russian um, uh, incursion into Ukraine. They banned the letter Z. Um, so this is their attempt to cover up their history. It's their attempt to try to change the facts uh, in the present. And Zelensky, you know, I know he's painted as this hero of this plucky little nation. He's banned many political parties. Socialist parties have been banned. TV stations have been banned who don't back him. So that is um, in keeping with what is happening uh, in Ukrainian politics. Yeah. And, you know, as we see this, you know, support for Ukraine or stand with Ukraine fervor uh, ratcheting up only further in the United States, there was a billboard that appeared in New York's Times Square uh, over the weekend, I believe. And you tweeted about that billboard. And what was it? What, what did it say, Margaret? And who, who was behind it? Well, there's this group there, mostly Canadian. Uh, and the Twitter site is Unite with uh, Ukraine, <clears throat> excuse me, and it's a, a, a project of the um, uh, Unite with Ukraine Congress. And a lot of Ukrainian collaborators went to Canada. At any rate, they post this uh, big sign, and it says Russian uh, Victory Shame Day. So they cross out the word victory and put uh, Russian Shame Day. And they paid for this ad, which uh, you can see in uh, in Times Square. And uh, it's a there. It's a, a stupid attempt, as I said. Most people don't even know about uh, Victory Day here to try to uh, tie anything uh, Russian with uh, anything that's bad. So, uh, so they put up this sign. Of course, people see it. It's in uh, in Times Square, and they've been uh, online with it. Um, and uh, uh, so, it's an effort to confuse people because they assumed that uh, Putin was going to use Victory Day to declare victory or do something that actually has not ha- even happened. And uh, so, they thought they were getting out in front of it. Instead, they've given attention to themselves as being pro-Nazi, which they've spent all this time claiming that they were uh, were not. But it's offended many people, including yours truly, and other people in New York City, that um, uh, this pro-Nazi message is being shoved in the faces of the uh, New York uh, public. But these groups get a lot of money. They get um, uh, U.S. NGOs, NED, National Endowment for Democracy, has been giving these people our public money for many years. And uh, so they have, um, uh, they believe, some kind of uh, uh, immunity. And uh, they have lots of money to get their message out. And this is uh, where it, it, has, um, it has ended. 
And it's certainly not the end of the rewriting of this particular history, but it's the end of this segment. I want to thank you so much, Margaret Kimberly, for joining us. We will be back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm Jackie Lukeman sitting in for Sean Blackman. Please stay tuned. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukemond. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the sudden departure of Sri Lankan Prime Minister and the implications of that move. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation by writer Indy Samarjeeva. Indy, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Jackie. Uh, nice, nice to be here. So, Indy, this is really a a a surprise, I think, move that uh, Sri Lanka's prime minister has stepped down over violent clashes in uh, Colombo. What has uh, led up to these uh, violent uh, incidents in Colombo, and you know what led to the basic abdication of uh, Sri Lanka's uh, prime minister Mahinda Rajaps? Rajapaksa. Thank you, Rajapaksa. Yeah. So let me unpack that again. Uh, let, let me unpack that a bit. So the protesters for months now, including me, have been calling for Gota go home. And Mahinda is not Gota. So this isn't really what people were asking for. Mahinda is Gota's brother. He was president before and he should go. But this is not what people were asking for. The The prime minister doesn't run the country in Sri Lanka. The, the president does. So what Mahinda did today was he organized, he bust in a bunch of supporters to Temple Trees, which is the prime minister's office. He got them all riled up. And then he sent those guys over to the peaceful protests that people have been having on golf face for over a month now. Like, I mean, I've taken my kids there, like families are there and so on. And, and Mahinda's people attacked and destroyed things that were there. And then in reaction, this is set off cycles, I mean... It's it set off a reaction, which I think is justified from protesters, but it is, of course, unpredictable. But another thing I'll say about Mahinda resigning, I mean, yeah, that, look, I don't believe it because here, let me give you an example. The deputy prime minister resigned, then they held a vote and then they put him back in again. So they do this stuff just to like get going in the news cycle. I'll believe it not just when he's gone, but when the president himself is gone. And at this point, you know, resigning is not quite enough. These guys these guys need to face some consequences. Yeah, the consequences that they need to face for uh, the way they have responded to these, as you pointed out, uh, very peaceful protests it seems eerily familiar with the way uh, uh, the governments uh, in the states uh, unleash the police on protesters here, using water cannons on uh, protesters and uh, all kinds of other violence. So what the things that people have been protesting against uh, the Rajapaka government about that led to this moment? Why are people in Sri Lanka angry with this particular government that they've taken to the streets to demand uh, all of their ouster? 
So everybody's experiencing the same things. Like we depend on, on natural gas for cooking and then that's unavailable. We depend on diesel and petrol for transportation. That's unavailable. These guys have mismanaged the foreign reserve situation to such a point that I think we have less than less than even $25 million in foreign reserves. So because of that, like medicines aren't available. Everybody's lives are impacted. Uh, Gota, who's the president, he banned the use of fertilizer. And even though that impact hasn't hit, we're, we're in for like famine level uh, you know, collapse of agriculture. So they've completely mismanaged the government. But one thing I will add, and this is my perspective, you do some reading around it, is that this is they're just part of 40 years of neoliberalism that have successfully stripped out people's protections and services and run us into this Western capitalist debt trap, which is just now exploding. And this is happening all over the world. We're just the canaries in the coal mine. 40 years of neoliberalism. That sounds eerily familiar to every other imperialist uh, action in so many other nations that have led to uh, uprisings among the people that eventually turned into some type of color revolution or involvement of uh, imperialist governments. Yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> like U.S. and India are like all up in here. And like Victoria Newland was here like a month ago, which is always terrifying. Wow. Like anywhere she goes, it's like chaos follows. Yeah, that was my next question. I mean, this this seems like this is this is a textbook case of, uh, you know, for for regime change, the IMF coming in, uh, the NED and the Victoria Newland types. And you just said that you just confirmed that. So I, I do wonder what this economic crisis has to do. Are there connections with the ongoing uh, military action in Ukraine, particularly with the fuel prices, the the banning of the use of fertilizer. How is this all tied together? So, I mean, look, there's also the Rajapaksas all, do also suck. Like I've, I've never supported them. Like they do like extraordinarily suck. But um, look, one thing I'll say about our Sri Lanka's debt crisis is Sri Lanka's debt is, I think, maybe 50 billion or something like for the U.S. That's like a rounding error. And for Europe and so on, that's that's nothing like they spend that much on like COVID corruption. So if these people actually cared about us, they could just give us debt relief. They give the global south debt relief. And then, you know, as we deserve reparations, that's not what they're doing. They come in and they pretend we're their friends and then they just impose austerity and just keep us in a colonial relationship. So, yeah, that's happening. But then at the same time, the Rajapaksas do suck and they should go. And I know it's. Yeah, I I know you're saying about color revolutions and stuff, but look, everybody in this country wants the Rajapaksas to go. And that unfortunately makes us easy prey for global geopolitics. Um, But I think I guess both things can be true. Yeah, especially now that you've confirmed that Victoria Nuland, the uh, cookie uh, distributing uh, to fascists in Ukraine in 2014, uh, a U.S. official has now made her entree into uh, Sri Lanka. So, you know, now that this uh, prime minister has made this show of stepping down, how does this usually go? Do do they just kind of step back from the public sphere for a while and, you know, relish in the in the in the news media and then come back with some, uh, you know, kind of grand pronouncement and and then, you know, the cycle starts all over again? 
Um, no, they, they can't. There's nowhere to step back to. Like tomorrow we'll still have power cuts. People still won't be able to cook their food. People still won't be able to put food on the table. People are still angry. And, you know, in response to this, people have, um, like, you know, burnt down MPs' houses. And an and MP was also killed. I think he was surrounded and then he shot himself. I mean, you should check the news for that. Um, so people are pissed. And they, they shouldn't have, like, these were peaceful protests. I, and also, look, I think, I think this burden on people to be peaceful while governments do violence to them is, is you know, not, not it's, I don't think it's fair. Like, people have been pushed really far. So I definitely understand the sentiment of, like, you know, burn these guys' houses down. The problem is it spills over. So right now, I mean, there's a police curfew, but it's effectively like a people's curfew, which can be it's just good and bad, right? They're, like, pulling cars over and seeing if they're a Mahinda supporter. So, like, it's hard to tell. You know, I don't know how you tell that. So my father-in-law is, like, sleeping at, his, at, his, at work today because, I mean, it's not, it's not quite safe to come home. So this is an unpredictable situation. Um, but if you're asking me if these guys deserve a slap, then I'd say, yeah. Definitely. And, you know, what about the uh, opposition parties in Sri Lanka? What have their responses been? Are they poised to force uh, elections? What, what has been the actions of the opposition parties uh, in Sri Lanka in response to these austerity measures, the, the suffering of the people, and, and the corrupt government? Because it, it definitely sounds like it's a government full of corrupt neoliberals in Sri Lanka. So, I mean, I think like almost every other liberal democracy, Sri Lanka has two, the two main parties are two capitalist parties. So they follow the same general neoliberal policies, but to different degrees. So the main opposition that would benefit from this, let's call them the the, the, yeah, the SJB. So Sajid Premadasa was at the protest today, and I think he also got assaulted by the Rajapaksa guys. Um, but then their their policies are, you know, we should have gone to the IMF sooner we need to like let markets go. We need to, you know, cut subsidies. We need to, you know, fire government workers. Do whatever the IMF says, which will just make things worse. We do have, um, I guess, like a sort of working people's party in the JVP. Um, I think even they say that we have no choice but going to the IMF. Um, and then there are some smaller parties like the NSB, which is an actual sort of revolutionary party. But I think that has like one member. Um, so we don't, I mean, look, it's like anywhere else. I think this liberal democracy thing is largely like a game that they left us where we can get, we can like decide which feudal lord rules us, but then they funnel the resources out to a global capital all the same. Yeah, it sounds like a, uh, a just uh, a, an untenable situation that doesn't look like it's, it's going to see any relief. Uh, so when the ruling party, uh, and the prime minister returns from, you know, not really being gone. Then what happens uh, among the people? As you said, you know, these issues are not being addressed that drove the people into the streets. So so what are you seeing uh, for the future of the Sri Lankan people, uh, this continued crisis that uh, people are enduring and, you know, this political uh, maneuvering uh, that is going on? Really, it seems to me for the Sri Lankan ruling party to remain in power. I don't know. I, yeah, I don't know what's going to happen. The thing is, constitutionally, there's no, like, there's no stable, there's no, like, orderly way for this thing to fall apart. Because um, you had a president and a prime minister who are brothers, like, 
you know, like, I, I think technically, so the prime minister would need to resign. I think the president would need to resign. Then the parliament, this parliament would have to elect a new prime minister. And under that caretaker government, they'd have to call. It's like all this, like, minutiae when people don't have time for it. What people want is an election. Um, I mean, I think elections have, I mean, I, I think voting, as Americans know, has, like, limited utility. But people right now are demanding um, an election. The thing is, constitutionally, each successive government has treated the constitution as like a way, just like their personal appointment letter. So it's good for keeping them in power, but it has no remedy for something like this. So we just get people taken to the streets. And then because the government chose violence, people are cho- choosing violence as well. This is what not having democracy looks like, unfortunately, in Sri Lanka. But I want to thank you so much, Indy Samajiva, for coming and letting us know what's going on in Sri Lanka. We'll definitely continue to watch uh, as things continue to unfold. We are out of time. We're going to leave it there. And we'll be right back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. So stay tuned. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movement shaping the world around us. Today, we're talking about the continued struggle against imperialism and NATO involvement in Africa. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation by Abayomi Azikiwe, editor of the Pan-African Newswire. Abayomi, thanks so much for joining me. Okay, thank you for the invitation once again. Absolutely. Now, we are, of course, in the midst of uh, probably unprecedented uh, media propaganda propping up this uh, proxy war in Ukraine as this thing that the U.S. must win and Russia is the aggressor. But there is not a lot of conversation in the media about NATO and its role in this conflict. So certainly there's not a lot of discussion in the public sphere about NATO's involvement everywhere else in the world before its involvement in Ukraine, particularly in Africa. And this is an area of the world where Africans are still struggling against NATO imperialism. So I'm wondering if you could give us some insight into this continued struggle in Africa against NATO and why it's so important in the context of what is going on uh, in the rest of the world right now. This is a very important point uh, that you're raising uh, today. In fact, uh, it has been uh, taken off uh, the television screens. It's been taken out of the newspapers. The fact that the Russian Federation has been talking about the threat uh, posed by the expansion of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. This is the centerpiece of uh, this Russian military intervention in Ukraine. Uh, There's also the question of the penetration and the integration of right-wing, neo-Nazi, neo-fascist organizations within the Ukrainian government and the Ukrainian uh, military structures. This is clear. It's been going on now for more than uh, eight years, yet uh, that has been taken uh, off uh, the television screens and off out of the uh, dialogue uh, that we hear every day. In addition, the treatment 
of uh, African students and workers uh, who were working in uh, Ukraine and the treatment, the racist treatment that they received, uh, being denied the admission into restaurants, being denied even the humanitarian assistance that's being uh, shipped uh, into uh, Ukraine and uh, Poland uh, by the United States through U.S. tax dollars. Uh, yet, uh, there's no discussion about these issues uh, right now. As far as Africa is concerned, and which I tried to articulate in uh, the paper, Our Case Against NATO, Africans and the Struggle Against Imperialism, is that uh, the NATO countries, those uh, states that formed the North Atlantic Treaty Organization uh, in 1949, of course, uh, had a long history of enslavement and colonialism on the African continent and among African people all over the world. Russia uh, never had colonies in Africa. Uh, they never were involved in the Atlantic slave trade. They never had colonies composed of African people in the Caribbean, in South America, in Central America, or uh, in North America. So this is a stark contrast uh, in regard to the history of uh, Western Europe and the United States vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, the former Soviet Union and now the Russian Federation. So these are important distinctions that have to be made, but they are not being made because the Biden administration is attempting to mobilize all public opinion, uh, not only domestically, but also internationally. And this has been the problem uh, with numerous uh, African governments vis-a-vis uh, -vis the United States, because they have not gone along uh, wholeheartedly and enthusiastically uh, with uh, this war program against the Russian Federation. Uh, Lloyd Austin, who is the Secretary of Defense, uh, said last week uh, during a surprise visit to Kiev, uh, Ukraine, that uh, the purpose of their mission is to weaken Russia. I mean, this is provocative language. It's language uh, that is not uh, geared towards any type of diplomatic uh, resolution uh, to this conflict. So Africa is very important for that reason. It's also very important uh, as it relates to resources. A lot of the agricultural production, uh, the export of agricultural products uh, goes uh, to uh, the African continent, as well as other uh, geopolitical regions around the world. In addition to that, uh, agricultural inputs, such as fertilizer and machinery, is also exported uh, to Africa. Uh, so these are very, very important uh, considerations uh, that are totally overlooked uh, by the Western corporate and even government-controlled media. Yeah. And, you know, a part of this important history uh, that you raise uh, in, in the creation of NATO and uh, the the lack of Russia's involvement in the crimes of, of the NATO countries in uh, the global human trafficking uh, crime against humanity called the transatlantic slave trade actually has connections to the way uh, black activists were uh, treated after uh, the 50s and or during the 50s and the 60s uh, after World War II as they were identifying with socialist ideology for their liberation. And we see then, if we understand history, that the kind of treatment those on the left, particularly black activists and anti-imperialist on the left, are receiving now mirrors the treatment that they received then when they decided that socialism was the only path to justice and liberation for them. So can you kind of make that connection for people and why the need to 
refocus uh, our international ties with Africa is doubly important in this particular moment? It's essential uh, during this time period. Uh, If we go back uh, to 1949, uh, when NATO was formed, that was the same year as the Paris Peace Conference, uh, which several uh, African-American leftist organizers attended, uh, people like Paul Robeson and W.B. Du Bois. And in response to that, uh, they came under tremendous pressure uh, by the United States government, then headed by Harry S. Truman, who was the president uh, after the uh, death of uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the end of World War II, and, of course, Churchill's famous speech on the Iron Curtain. Uh, Yet, uh, people have forgotten or or choose to ignore uh, the fact that uh, the most militant, the most uh, anti-imperialist and socialist-oriented leadership uh, during this period uh, was attacked uh, by uh, the United States government through the Justice Department and the State Department. For example, W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, Shirley Graham Du Bois had their passport seized. Paul Robeson had his uh, passport seized. People like Claudia Jones, uh, for example, an African-American communist uh, who, in fact, uh, contributed tremendously ideologically and politically uh, to the black struggle and to the socialist struggle in this country, uh, was brought uh, under prosecution by the United States government. Uh, She was convicted under bogus uh, charges, uh, put in prison for a year, and then deported uh, to England uh, because she was born in Trinidad. Uh, So all of this took place. Uh, William Alpheus Hutton, uh, who was a co-founder of the Council on African Affairs, that did tremendous work in defense of the anti-colonial struggle uh, during the uh, late 1930s all the way through the early 1950s. Uh, He himself uh, was even imprisoned. Uh, for a period of time in the 1950s because he refused to turn over the organizational records of the Council on African Affairs uh, to uh, the United States Congress and Justice Department. So we have to uh, rise up uh, and look at uh, this history. And even after that, if we look at the uh, post-independence struggle period uh, beginning uh, in the 1950s, although the United States claimed uh, that it was in support of independence and self-determination for the colonial and semi-colonial countries. They only supported it uh, if it was against uh, the Soviet Union and against China, uh, North Korea, and against Vietnam, and eventually against Cuba. Uh, So it's very politically uh, biased, the whole uh, concept of U.S. support uh, for self-determination and independence. And we know in reality uh, what actually happened. Uh, NATO uh, supported Portugal uh, when they were attempting to suppress uh, the national liberation struggles in Guinea-Bissau, Cape Verde, Mozambique, Angola, Sao Tome, and Principe, as well as other uh, countries and geopolitical regions uh, throughout the African continent. The U.S. has always been on the wrong side of the African revolution, and we need to keep this in mind. They attempt to make us believe uh, that this war uh, in Ukraine, which the United States is funding, Uh, They have their own advisors there, their mercenaries there from the United States, and they are fueling the conflict uh, by sending billions upon billions of dollars uh, to support, really, a battle uh, that upholds uh, Western imperialism and neo-fascism. And uh, we have to understand uh, that in spite uh, 
of all the propaganda and all the psychological warfare, uh, the side of the United States represents reaction, and the side of the Russian Federation represents an effort to beat back NATO in Eastern Europe. And this has implications worldwide. Uh, we're facing right now the potential of a large-scale conventional military conflict in Eastern Europe, and also uh, the possibility of a nuclear conflict, uh, which we have not seen uh, since uh, the 1980s. Yeah, that is absolutely terrifying. And, you know, a part of this history, uh, Abayomi, which actually I didn't know was that in Algeria, you write in your article on the same day as Nazi Germany surrendered to the allies, allied forces, which included the former Soviet Union, by the way. And today is uh, Victory Day for Russia because it was the Soviet Red Army that basically defeated the Nazi German uh, Germany army on the same day. As Nazi Germany surrendered to the Allied forces, French troops massacred thousands of people across the North African state of Algeria for merely demonstrating against the racist and repressive policies of Paris. And of course, France has colonized Algeria since the 1830s and has continued to maintain a footprint in several uh, of the former of its former colonies in Africa. So so what does NATO and imperialism and their former colonial states look like in the 21st century in Africa and around the world? Well, they're attempting uh, to make it appear as if they have involvements uh, in countries like Mali, uh, Burkina Faso, uh, Guinea, uh, Chad, among others, uh, to fight against Islamic jihadism. If we study history, we know that the origins of this uh, ideology and tendency is uh, within the anti-communist struggle waged by U.S. imperialism against socialism. Uh, For example, in Afghanistan in the late 1970s, the U.S. fomented, uh, funded, organized a counterinsurgency against the socialist-oriented government in uh, the People's Democratic uh, Republic of Afghanistan. Uh, We also see uh, that in countries like Iraq, in Syria, Libya, countries that attempted to embark upon an independent uh, economic and political path, uh, they too have been under attack and have virtually been destroyed uh, by uh, U.S. imperialism. Algeria is an excellent example of the role of U.S. imperialism in suppressing anti-colonial struggles, as you noted, uh, and as I pointed out uh, in uh, this uh, research paper, that on the same day uh, that uh, the German uh, Nazi military surrendered uh, to the Allied forces, uh, thousands of people went out in Algeria with signs celebrating the victory of Nazi Germany, but at the same time calling for the independence of Algeria from France, and they were met uh, with extreme uh, brutality, uh, which lasted uh, for an extended period of time. And then nine years later, in 1954, uh, the Front uh, Liberation Nationale, uh, the National Liberation Front of Algeria, uh, began an armed struggle without any other alternative. Uh, They had attempted for many years uh, through petitioning, uh, through mass action, they had to resort uh, to uh, armed struggle between 1954 and 1962, which actually won uh, the independence of Algeria. And even after Algeria won its independence uh, under the Kennedy administration, they had invited uh, the then um, 
uh, leader of Algeria, Ben Bella, to the United States. He was also going to go to Cuba uh, during that particular time period, and the Cuban Revolution was in its infancy. And uh, the Kennedy administration told him uh, not to go to Cuba because they had gotten information that his plane would be shot down en route uh, to Cuba. Of course, he went anyway. And uh, nothing uh, happened to him uh, at that time. But th these are just uh, indications of uh, the type of uh, subterfuge and the type of uh, counter-revolutionary foreign policy that the United States engaged in uh, during the post-World War II period and continues up until today. Uh, we know uh, that uh, they are attempting to weaken and overthrow uh, the Russian Federation government, but at the same time, uh, they're trying to uh, weaken China uh, in Asia and uh, as well as internationally. Uh, so this war is connected uh, with the same Cold War policy that emerged after the post-World War II period in regard to weakening Russia, weakening China, weakening Iran to uh, keep Africa within the uh, geopolitical sphere of U.S. imperialism. And that's why as progressives, uh, as uh, uh, leftists, and even peace activists in the United States must oppose the expansion of NATO and Eastern Europe and anywhere else throughout the world. Indeed, and that is why imperialism is the primary contradiction. We want to thank you so much, Abayomi Ezekiwe, for joining us. We're going to leave it there on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back, so stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukemond, and as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, my friends, I have returned. Sean Blackman is on leave, taking a well-deserved few days off. But you can join us live on Rumble and at 3.20 p.m. Eastern time. Give us a call at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But that is just one way for our allies, accomplices, and comrades to reach out and touch us. Hear it by any means necessary. You can listen to our shows at Sputnik news.com slash radio then click on the plus sign and type in by any means necessary you can also find us on sputnik.mave that's m-a-v-e dot digital you can listen to us live on your radio dial at 105.5 fm and 1390 a.m in the washington dc area from 2 to 4 p.m eastern time and yes y'all we are streaming live for your viewing pleasure on rumble right now at rumble.com slash c slash b-a-m necessary the chat is indeed live and yes at 3 20 p.m eastern today you can call us at 202-521-1320 that's 202 5211320 but wherever you are in this world and however you do it we definitely want to hear from you and at the top of the hour I want to mention so that I do not forget that it is John Brown's birthday and I think we should always always question our allies about what they think about John Brown 
But we're also happy to be joined by Esther Ibiram. Esther is an artist, author, independent journalist, and host and producer of On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital, which you can listen to both as a podcast and on Pacifica Radio. Esther, thanks so much for joining me today. Always happy to join you, Jackie. I'm so happy to uh, have you on today, particularly since we bumped into each other by happenstance in Cuba. We were both there for May Day celebrations. And today just seems kind of like a weird coalescing of a whole lot of of radical themes. I mean, we've got today is uh, the Soviet victory over the Nazi Army Day, which is, you know, of course, being twisted ridiculously by the media. We've got John Brown's birthday uh, um, and that there is just so much going on in this country that speaks to the need to do what I think was raised a lot in that uh, May Day uh, closing session, particularly the closing uh, session of the celebration and the remarks that were made by the foreign minister and the president of Cuba and what they said about the need to focus on anti-imperialism and to ensure uh, that democracy, true democracy, exists, is able to be sustained, and that humanity is. Uh, respected throughout the world. So I I wanted to start our conversation, Esther, with your thoughts on May Day in Cuba and and what you felt like the theme or the comments from the officials who spoke at the closing session, what you felt like we should take from uh, from those sessions. You know, whenever I'm in Cuba and I've had a chance to go, you know, a few times and I think that this time, especially, the comments that you're referring to really reinforce the need for, you know, international solidarity. And when you, uh, when you're there and you have a chance to meet people and talk to people from all over the world, you're encouraged in a way, in a way that you aren't encouraged sometimes here in the States to know that that we are in the majority. The people, the majority of the people in the world uh, do not want to live under an oppressive uh, system of capitalism or imperialism, uh, even if they don't articulate it in that same way in their own country. They're there to celebrate uh, a socialist country that is striving for peace and international cooperation that has been targeted by this behemoth to the north that we where we live uh, for 60 years now that has been especially uh, targeted in a criminal way in the last uh, several years by 243 additional sanctions by the Trump administration, carried on by the Biden administration, and made worse in many ways. So um, I think that what I took away from was this first, this idea of international solidarity that uh, not only does, not only are we the majority, but that Cuba has friends. And maybe in this country, I was just looking at some of the corporate media today. uh, Maybe in this country, we don't get to hear 
media. We don't get to read or listen to media, news organizations that express this. But even if they told the truth that every year, only two countries in the world at the United Nations oppose, uh, support this, this criminal embargo uh, on Cuba, and that's the United States and Israel, right? So uh, sometimes, you know, when you're in Cuba, it's almost kind of like a reality check in a good way, because we don't get that reality check here a lot. We're fed a steady diet of misinformation and imperialist propaganda. And sometimes, you know, coming back, as I think you'll agree, it's jarring. <laughs> After being there, um, but that's what I got from, in general, from the statements from uh, President Diaz-Canal and also the Foreign Minister Perea. Yeah, I, I got to say, you know, coming back to the United States after experiencing that level of of worker solidarity, of revolutionary solidarity, just the resolve of six million Cuban people coming out in the first May Day celebration since the onset of the pandemic in a country that, you know, as we note and, and continue to note that has been undergoing 60 years of criminal embargoes, additional 200, over 200 additional sanctions in addition to the 60 year embargo um, and, and just being among the people in Cuba who understand imperialism in a way that, of course, we strive to explain it in our political education so people here can get it. But we have to cut through so much of this misinformation in the United States, people in Cuba. And I think this is true because I, I I experienced this also in Venezuela, Esther, and I bet you that this is true, not of everyone everywhere else in the world, but certainly of many people in left struggles in other countries in the world who have a clearer understanding of the role of U.S. imperialism, NATO's involvement in the destabilization of uh, actual democracies, uh, the, the danger of the IMF and the uh, National Endowment for Democracy, which is not an, an endowment for democracy. It's an endowment for uh, U.S.-backed authoritarianism. I, I got the feeling that people in Cuba really understood that the primary contradiction is imperialism. And they're, they're kind of, I got the feeling that they were kind of hoping that we, more of us in the U.S. would catch on and join that struggle. I, and, and I'm wondering if you have gotten that uh, feeling uh, from, from being in Cuba more than once, uh, or if I'm just being idealistic and hoping that, that that's what I was feeling there. Well, you know, I think like everywhere it's mixed, but I think that overwhelmingly, if you look, if you look at the outpouring on May Day, you have a higher level of political education and understanding, not only in Cuba, but like you, you hinted, like in many countries that especially that are targeted by this country and with its economic sanctions and other types of measures to you know, cripple a, a, a country. So I, you know, I spoke to a number of people there uh, from Cuba, but from around the world. And in terms of the Cubans, 
you know, for example, uh, some of the hotel workers at the Hotel Nacional, you know, listening to them speak, they're very aware that their particular hotel, where they work and they, they make a living, where they, you know, try to, uh, you know, provide for their families, is specifically targeted by the United States because it's a part of tourism, but also because it's owned by the government. You know, this famous landmark, this palatial hotel that was the site of, you know, the, the home for the American mafia and, you know, offshore you know, gambling from the United States and in the early part of, since it was built in 1930, when pro- prohibition was still happening, right? So it was mm-hmm. a, way, a place to go and drink and gamble, right? Right. Sure, of the state. And uh, so since the government has taken over the Hotel Nazi and now this beautiful waterfront property, you know, this is a place that the U.S. is specifically targeting because it's partly owned by the government. That is owned, you know, is owned completely by the government. And so those workers there, they are definitely aware that uh, the place that they work, where they, they make a living, where they contribute to the country's economy is specifically targeted. Yeah, and I, and I don't think we can talk about uh, Cuba, uh, and particularly since you raised the issue of the hotel workers at the Nacional. I don't think we can talk about Cuba without talking about the horrific uh, explosion at uh, another uh, uh, hotel, uh, luxury hotel in Havana, the Hotel Saratoga, which was a five-star, 96-room hotel in Old Havana that was preparing to reopen after it was closed for two years when an apparent gas leak ignited, uh, blowing the outer walls, the old facade of the building onto the streets below. Um, uh, I think the death toll uh, is is in the dozens. Um, the Ministry of Cuba uh, said that 54 people were injured and 24 were hospitalized. And I think when we think about this and of course, the, you know, the Cuban government has said that said that this is this is a horrible accident. And and I'm I'm going to continue to say that until the until the Cuban government says otherwise, they are investigating. And, and uh, there were reports that a crane had lifted uh, a large and charred gas tank out of the remains uh, of the building. But I think this does speak to the precariousness of the uh, uh, the reality for Cuban people to make a living off of the one way, basically, that they almost have left, which is tourism. And, you know, the, the United States government has done everything it can to harm the the Cuban people. They say these sanctions and the blockade are against the government, but really the sanctions and the blockade keep Cuban people from being able to support themselves. And we saw that with our very eyes, our very own eyes, in particular when I went to Old Havana uh, early last week um, and I saw the U.S. consulate office. They don't call it an embassy. I think they call it a, a, a U.S. section of interest or whatever, but it might as well be an embassy. It's a very big, tall, imposing glass and steel behemoth marring the the, the skyline of Old Havana. It struck me, Esther, when I saw this building um, where U.S. officials uh, carry out 
these policies against Cuba right in the country, right in old Havana, it struck me that the U.S. government knows precisely who they are harming with these sanctions, with these blockades, with these, you know, horrible uh, uh, criminal actions against the people of Cuba. So, you know, when we look at the the tragedy of this explosion at the hotel, I don't think we can keep we should keep it uh, separate, keep separate the fact that the United States government wants to destroy Cuba in any way it can. And I, I'm, I'm hoping that it's true, that it turns out to be true that this was a terrible, terrible uh, construction accident. But, you know, Esther, I'm just I'm just pessimistic to have my radar up to wonder if something more nefarious was going on. And e- even as you recognize lives were lost in, in this horrible accident. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I actually stayed not far from that hotel and actually walked by it very regularly. Uh, it's right across from the Capitol. And it was on my route to, um, you know, other places out of, you know, old Havana to go other places, a very popular street to walk down, you know, because you're, you're going from there to access a number of different points, uh, in Havana. And, you know, I, I think that they know that, as you said, that they, these horrific criminal, uh, policies are not just targeting the government. Uh, because whenever you target tourism, as well as food, as well as fuel, and those are your top three targets, you know that you're affecting people. If you're affecting people's ability to feed themselves and feed their children, if you're affecting, and we, we can see already when, when fuel is impacted here, even here, how much that impacts impact every other part of the economy because you need trucks and you right. need cars or trains or whatever. You need these forms of transportation to move food, to move goods from one section to another. So what order and, and in, throughout Europe now, you know, those places that are experiencing double digit inflation, it's because they've entered into these really, um, they've, quickly entered into these sanctions without realizing against Russia, without realizing the impact that that would have in terms of banning or decreasing their dependence on Russia, oil and gas or whatever. So they know exactly who they are impacting and they're hoping just like in all of their other efforts that regime change around the world, that Cuban people will become so so dissatisfied, so depleted of energy and love for their revolution that they will rise up and overflow, overthrow the government, you know, which is not going to happen. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's and, and, and I saw for myself, this was my first trip to Cuba. I saw for myself that it is not going to happen. I see the U.S. policies in Cuba to continue to try to, quote unquote, isolate uh, Cuba as some type of you know, authoritarian regime by the United States government as as really a, an exercise in, in not just 
futility, but absolute brutality. But it's, you know, it's amazing how, as as I said at the beginning, like more than six million people in Cuba came out and participated in the May Day celebrations. It, it was a massive, incredibly overwhelming, emotionally, uh, you know, emotionally overwhelming event for me. But it 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 gave me the visual of why the Cuban revolution will never be broken by the United States because Cuban people are are quite resolute in defending their revolution. But, you know, I want to talk about uh, the Biden administration still trying to isolate Cuba at the summit of the Americas. But I want to pick this up on the other side of the first break of the hour. We will be right back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukemond. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movement shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open, my friends, 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I am Jackie Lukeman, and I continue to be joined by Esther Iverum. And Esther, we were talking on the other side of the break about uh, the U.S. government still attempting to isolate Cuba by not uh, inviting Cuba to the Summit of the Americas that is coming up in June uh, that will be held in Los Angeles. But just like most of the U.S. government's imperialist plans is not working out the way I think they intended, because all of these claims that we see in the U.S. media about the government uh, of this country isolating Cuba, that other the rest of the world is uh, uh, questioning uh, Cuba's uh, actions and and particularly around the demonstrations in July, the right right wing, uh, quote unquote, uprising in July in Cuba, which in which uh, Cubans demanded political and economic freedoms. And and I got to tell you, I've been to Cuba. Esther has been to Cuba. No one is repressed from participating in political uh, life. Um, Community organizations are uh, free, democratic, and uh, uh, a part of the political system, quite literally from the neighborhood level right on up to the national government. And I mean, the economic freedoms, that's the fault of the U.S. government, not the fault of the Cuban government at all. But, you know, Esther, I wonder what your thoughts are about uh, Joe Biden's. Now, let's be clear, this is not a Trump policy that Biden is extending. This is Joe Biden saying we're not going to invite Cuba to the summit of the Americas. How do you see this playing out? Well, I have to say, I I read a piece of a piece uh, an article on foreign policy before it got cut me off because I'm not a subscriber or whatever. And it basically the headline was how the summit could be a disaster because it was so disorganized. The invitations hadn't gone out and it looked like it was going to be another foreign policy disaster for the Biden administration. Having said that, when I was there or even before I went, I think I saw a statement from the Cuban foreign minister, Perea, 
basically denouncing the fact that Blinken and his ilk are attempting to uh, exclude uh, Cuba from this summit and especially pointing out the fact that health would be a big part of this summit and pointing out how hypocritical it is, how ridiculous it is to exclude Cuba, which has done more than any other country in our hemisphere during the pandemic, as far as sending doctors around the world, developing its own five vaccines, which you could actually share more fully with the world if it wasn't blocked by the United States in terms of sharing life-saving medicine. And the fact that aside from just COVID, you know, Cuba is in the forefront of all types of medical research and uh, medical advances that can help people here. You know, I remember when they offered to help people post-Katrina. Right. And, you know, this country had the nerve to, to not accept the help, you know, while our people were like drowning and hurting in New Orleans. Similarly, when the health, one of the health ministers gave a presentation on that final day that we attended, there was this tremendous presentation about, you know, diabetes medication. We mm-hmm. know lung cancer vaccination, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But we also have something that has proven to prevent these amputations of feet, you know, by people who have um, diabetes. And, you know, you hear about that every now and then in terms of people whose diabetes have gotten so bad that in this country, this advanced country, right, where we have bookworm and, you know, Lowndes County in Alabama. Right. We have, we still don't have clean water in Newark mm-hmm. and, and even in Flint and Benton Harbor uh, affecting black people. But, you know, in addition to having these types of issues ongoing, you know, Cuba's development of this vaccine could help a whole lot of people who are suffering with diabetes here in this country and have these issues of having these having to have these amputations. So the fact that Biden is uh, supposedly, you know, banning Cuba or not in, not in allowing Cuba to attend when Cuba can do so much to help people throughout this hemisphere with its medical advances is criminal and it's ridiculous. And we know that this whole idea about, oh, Cuba is not a democracy, uh, Nicaragua is not a democracy or what, so that's why we can't invite them. While they invite all of their, you know, right-wing henchmen who are killing our people in the streets, you know, people like Bolsonaro, I guess, who's, like, chopping down the Amazon Mm -hmm. so that, you know, we'll all, like, you know, die a, a slow death of, like, climate catastrophe, so those people, I suppose, those people are, are, they're welcome, right? So, you know, it's just the same kind of hypocrisy when he tried to have that other summit or whatever it was called. Remember Democracy Summit? Oh, that's right. Yes, the Summit for Democracy. It's sort of the same thing where the United States is just caught in its own hypocrisy, whereas, you know, like Saudi Arabia, who's like chopping people's heads off, they could come to that, right? Right. <laughs> you know, so... So, you know, it's just it's just more ridiculousness. It makes the United States continue to look hypocritical and ridiculous on the world stage. You know, at the same time, it's trying to to uh, support so-called democratic state in Ukraine 
while we're or we're arming neo Nazis or literal Nazis and 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 saying that you know well Russia is the one who who's attacked when we know the war has been going on for eight years. So it's just like, oh, you know, what you say <laughs> it's just more more madness and and you know we're going to be out at an uh, a, a counter summit being planned called the People Summit. Mm-hmm. And that will be happening at the same time, I think, June 8th through the 10th in Los Angeles. You know, many of our organizations that we're a part of, Answer, Code Pink, you know, even some unions are getting involved uh, to basically be a counter to this this warmongering summit that is, you know, uh, where, they, where they're taking this right that they don't have to exclude countries when uh, I think Cuba hosted the last time and invited, you know, this 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 imperialist nation that's strangling it but they were you know diplomat enough to invite the u.s but the u.s you know in the same type of petty bully schoolyard bully attitude you know oh i'm not going to invite cuba It's, it's just ridiculous it really does make the united states government look exactly that petty look like playground bullies, you know, of course, with, you know, the greatest, most deadly, greatest number of the most deadly weapons in the world. But still, the the non-aligned countries, the countries in the Americas uh, who are a part of this summit are they are not being silent about the exclusion of Cuba. Uh, President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador um, uh, asked Biden to uh, invite to the summit all countries of the Western Hemisphere. Well, he didn't ask. He urged Biden to do that. Um, And uh, even as even as the United States claims that, well, now they're not going to invite Nicaragua either, where President Daniel Ortega has been accused of conducting uh, what the U.S. and many other nations uh, and so-called democracy groups call a sham election that gave him another term in office. And of course, there's the question, Esther, of whether the Biden administration will invite President Nicolas Maduro of Venezuela or whether they will invite Juan Guaido, who is the president of not a thing in Venezuela. So all of this, all of this makes the United States look really quite foolish, if not to people in this country, of course, because people in this country are not indoctrinated to care much about foreign policy. And unless the U.S. says, hey, here's a bad guy we have to uh, we have to fight a war against. Here's a bad guy. We have to go bomb. But this move is making the United States look even more ridiculous and petty to other governments and other people around the world. And I'm wondering if you think this will push uh, more countries to break uh, sever ties, whether, you know, if not economically, but certainly diplomatically to some level um, with the United States and move toward a more uh, non-aligned, multipolar type of environment. Well, I know that I, I have to get exactly, you know, you, you, maybe you can help me because I know some countries have already uh, left voluntarily this sham OAS, Organization of American States, organiza- you know, uh, set up that, you know, the U.S. controls, the U.S. makes all the rules and then gets all its puppet governments in the hemisphere to kind of go along with marginalizing and isolating Cuba. And 
you know, the United States was instrumental in really breaking up uh, ALBA, which was an organization where many of the progressive or, uh, countries in the hemisphere had joined to have their own economic cooperation with each other. And so I think that there has been some discussion of, of restarting ALBA and also just restarting other types of, of cooperation uh, where, that would not involve the United States at all. You know, I, I mean, did you, if I'm, if I'm correct, the United States tried to join CARICOM <laughs> and yes, so if they met the USN or that, I don't think so, but there are always efforts at organizing and uh, coming together to try to beat back U.S. imperialism. And I expect those efforts to continue. Um, and this People's Summit, where uh, I believe if Cuba's not at the, at, the, at the Summit for the Americans, they'll be over at the People's Summit, <laughs> and they will, be, uh, they will be there with other representatives of the countries that the United States is trying to isolate. Yeah, it, it was Nicaragua that uh, expelled the OAS. So uh, the United States government is now punishing Nicaragua for doing that by not inviting it to the summit of the Americas that governments of the Americas really don't want to be a part of in any way. You know, but uh, Esther, you did mention a few minutes ago uh, the situation in Ukraine. And of course, this looms large over everything. Everything we talk about, Ukraine looms large over it because we we are talking about the issue of imperialism and all of this is connected to that. And, and it's it's not shocking that U.S. intelligence uh, has admitted that they have been uh, advising their uh, ally uh proxy henchmen in Ukraine, uh, giving them intelligence to kill Russian generals and uh, could have been involved in providing intelligence that uh, resulted in the sinking of the Russian uh, battleship, the Moskva, uh, on the Black Sea a few weeks ago. Now, According to some former U.S. intelligence officers, um, they are advising their successors, their current uh, intelligence officers, to shut up and stop boasting about their their role in Ukraine's military, quote unquote, successes. Now, Esther, I, I don't know if, if I would call these these things that were done military successes, because uh, uh, clearly this this is not a. This is not the just war that, of course, the U.S. media and the U.S. uh, uh, intelligence apparatus is uh, lying to the world to make us believe. But I do wonder what your thoughts are about the former U.S. intelligence officers being, you know, really quite verklempt and and clutching their pearls at, at the glee that the current intelligence officers are expressing and openly admitting, yes, we are collaborating with Ukraine in a war that's not supposed to be a proxy war that the U.S. is fighting in Ukraine against Russia to help Ukraine fight Russia. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not confused by this. I just think it's rather amusing that uh, the, the old guard is not happy with the behavior of the new guard. Well, I'm probably more confused than you because I'm not sure that they're they are verklempt or unhappy. 
it's hard to know whether how much of this is theater, like, oh, you shouldn't be doing that. On the one hand, they want to brag. They want to dunk on Russia. They want to make it seem like, okay, you know, in your face, we're doing this to you. And that, like, that's part of the strategy. On the other hand, like you said, you get these other statements about, like, you all need to shut up, right? So I'm not really sure. You know, just like, you know, you're not sure about this explosion in Havana. It's not really clear to me what is theater, what's part of the theater, and what's part of the the uh, wanting to step back and be more reserved, right? I saw Linda Thomas Greenfield. Mm-hmm. I saw the U.N. ambassador on uh, on CNN over the weekend. And, you know, it's obvious to me that that she did not want to necessarily um, deny that these things had happened, you know? She was basically wanting to stress the fact that, okay, Russia started the war. In other words, she wants to uh, continue the narrative that Russia started the war. And so basically anything that we're doing right now to counter Russia is fair game. You know what I mean? So it's, they're not all speaking on the same page. Uh, they're not all uh, being uh, sounding worried. Uh, this newer generation of people that they are supposedly trying to chide, they're part of the same Blinken, Ned Price, uh, Victoria Newland uh, apparatus that is uh, this 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 neoliberal hawk generation that has been basically uh, from the start of this you know, uh, not engaging in uh, true negotiations with Russia that's led us to this point. It's, it's, it's a real troubling generation in a sense because you don't know how far that far they'll go. And then it's, it's almost like they have no fear about continuing to lie, continuing to provoke, continuing to ratchet up the situation and escalate to the point of where? Nuclear war? And so I kind of see the same very egregious situation that we couldn't imagine in the reverse. We could not imagine another country bragging about killing our generals, right? Mm-hmm. So, so I, I I don't know what to think about it except for it's this it's coming out of the same type of bully mentality that can only escalate. It cannot. It, it's, it can't de-escalate. So that's really what I'm looking at. Yeah, definitely uh, a frightening situation. But we're going to talk a little bit more about that on the other side of this next break. We will be right back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukemond. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are still open, friends. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I am Jackie Lukeman, and I continue to be joined by Esther Iverum. And Esther, uh, apparently, uh, Jill Biden 
visited uh, Ukraine after comforting refugees in Slovakia. She uh, paid a a surprise visit, I guess, to uh, the first lady of uh, Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky's wife. And I I just really feel like, and and I, I don't think any more details on that are necessary, other than to point out that this is really, I think, now, you know, Biden is is bringing out his wife, the first lady for this PR campaign, which I think is a signal to me that um, the 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 cracks in the facade of the U.S. propaganda are showing. I think it is becoming clear for Biden that uh, this proxy war has not boosted his poll ratings, particularly as this country is about to face a decision by the U.S. Supreme Court that could change life drastically for women in this country. So I, I think this this proxy war, for whatever reasons the U.S. engaged in it, it's not working out the way the Biden administration kind of hoped it would. It would boost his ratings a bit and make him the hero. He's being the tough guy against Putin all the time, throwing all, all of our money into the war machine. It's going so badly, Esther, that I think that he had to to he had to send his wife out for a PR campaign. And and I, I don't know. I don't think that's going to go any better for the Biden administration. But I'm wondering your thoughts. Well, you know, I've been I've been meaning to say during our discussion, I, I've been wanting to go back to coming back from Cuba. And this might be the perfect place to mention it, because I've been you know, beset by all these stories since I've been back. And it's just occurred to me that, not just occurred to me, but you can just see it in front of your face that this so-called democracy that, you know, Biden wants to hold up, that the Congress wants to hold up, you know, in terms of like, you know, banning Cuba, Nicaragua, whatever, from the summit of the Americas, we don't have those, we don't have, you know, democratic rights here. You know, I mean, I remember when Trump was trying to to keep people from voting, was removing mailboxes and trying to ban mail-in ballots in the middle of a pandemic, was trying to uh, keep uh, not count votes in Detroit and North Philly, where I'm from, right? And I'm thinking about coming back, and as you mentioned, abortion rights are under attack. You know, for the past year, we've been talking about voting rights under attack, uh, labor rights. You know, the people in Am- at Amazon and Starbucks, they have won their their union votes, but they still have to go up against the millions of dollars from these corporations to get them to the bargaining table where they, they are legally obligated to bargain with these workers to, to get a contract. But they're trying to hold up. They're trying to still scuttle the process. You know, uh, the you know critical race theory. Mm-hmm. No, it's really just about not telling the truth about history, right? Right. Same thing is happening in Ukraine. They don't want to tell the truth about history in Ukraine. They don't want to tell the truth about uh, Nazis in Ukraine. They don't want to talk about the history of the Soviet Union and those 27 million people that they lost fighting Nazis and that the the Red Army uh, defeated Nazi Germany. They don't want to talk about that. So it's like you're living in this netherworld where people are telling you you have these rights and you live under a democracy. But you, you see, I see 
rights passed in my lifetime, right? Like voting rights being eviscerated. So anyway, I hope that's not too much of a screen. (laughs) (laughs) I I wanted to say that because when when you see someone like Jill Biden going over to Ukraine, it's almost as if, like you said, it's not just to a PR campaign, but it's to kind of like, you know, wash your way or try to disappear all these things that are really happening on the home front. You know, why doesn't she go visit uh, the people in prison here? Why mm. doesn't she go visit, why doesn't she go to the border? Or why doesn't she visit the, the mothers whose children have been taken away from them in this country? You know, who've been stolen from them, kidnapped and stolen from them. And, and they still don't know where the parents are or the, or the children, you know, Real crimes have been committed here, you know, under the name of what? And so I would prefer to see Jill Biden uh, visit mothers whose children are suffering brain damage in Flint, Michigan. You know, right? Visit visit the the uh, the the women who right now are in fear that they cannot get uh, access to abortion care. You know, and they know that they are carrying a fetus that cannot live outside the womb, right? Or they know that they can't afford, they can't afford a child and they should not be made to force, be given, um, they, they should not be forced to give birth to a child that they can't take care of and that the states, especially states like Mississippi, trifling states like Mississippi, who can't even, you know, operate a foster care system without being sued for neglect and just passed a bill where they won't even pay for your Medicaid postpartum care, right? You shouldn't be able to be forced to give birth in a state like that. That is that hostile to women. So I would prefer Joe Biden just visit people here because, you know, uh, we, we have, we're hurting here and uh, we, we are hurting and we shouldn't be receptive with more of this Ukraine propaganda as of Zelensky and his wife are this paragons of democracy, which we don't even have here. You know what, Esther, that that was the best screed, I think, in in a while. And it wasn't even a screed because it was the whole truth. I, 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 I don't understand how these folks in this country, Republican and Democrat alike, mind you, because uh, I, I have beef with the Democrat about Democrats about this abortion issue. And I'll get to that in a minute. But I don't understand how these people can refuse to provide sex education in public school and refuse to provide contraception as a part of health care, but then criminalize abortion as a reproductive right. You you can't have it both ways, but somehow these folks have figured out a way to do exactly that. And if any of this abortion talk, but especially on on behalf of the right wing and especially the crystal fascists who are always talking about unborn babies and they need to save unborn babies and especially folks who come with that, oh, all the black babies who are being aborted. If it was really about children, they would have focused attention on the foster care system with over, what, 400,000 children in the U.S. foster care system right now who need to be adopted. They would have focused on all of those issues you mentioned, uh, um, Esther. They would also be willing to provide 
contraception as a part of health care that is free and accessible to everyone and to provide sex education in uh, public schools so that young people can understand how their bodies work and make the best decisions with their bodies for themselves with the best knowledge available. But oh, no, no, no. Now we are in a situation that I think the Democratic Party is trying to blame on the Republican Party. And and there's certainly plenty of blame to go there. But Esther, I can never forget those years that Barack Obama had a supermajority in Congress and the Democrats could have voted to codify Roe versus Wade then. What happened, Esther? Many things that could have been done during those two years. And as we know, he spent most of his political capital on passing what was known as Obamacare, even though it was Republican health care plan, first, uh, I guess, either implemented or proposed by Mitt Romney in Massachusetts, which basically gave corporations more customers, <laughs> which made us... Uh, which, which, which made us customers automatically to some uh, health care uh, corporation or insurance company, not health care, but insurance, right? And on top, but well, it did put a lot of young people on their parents' plans until they turned 26, and it eliminated this discrimination against so-called pre-existing conditions. So those two good elements of it we're still trying to hold on to them, but really we know that there's so many things that Obama could have done during those two years. And just the fact that it's taken, I don't know, how many years later now, is it a decade later, where we're, we, went, we may finally get some relief for the post office. This is the post office that belongs to the people. And uh, before Obama came in, the Bush administration had put in these draconian rules, uh, basically trying to starve and squeeze the post office and get rid of it so that it could be privatized. But, you know, that pensions for, I don't know how many decades in advance would have to be financed and paid for. And that's why the post office has been living on such a thin lifeline. And while, you know, every few years there's a crisis and they need to raise the price of stamps, but I, I think of that because the post office is one of the few public institutions that everyone loves, that everyone needs. It's one of the few places where we had kind of like a public gathering place in our community. Right. Uh, you know, it was a place where people knew they could get a decent paying job. And maybe that was another reason it was, it was targeted. But I just use that as an example because there's just so many things that Obama could have passed if he really came in with an agenda to, to help the people as opposed to uh, create, what do they call it, uh, a cabinet of en- enemies or, you know, uh, a cabinet of rivalries, you know, you know, letting, you know, Hillary Clinton go around the world creating havoc in Lib- Libya. I mean, just so many things happened during his administration that are just, uh, it's, it's more than regrettable. But that first two years is a, the squandered two years of my lifetime for sure. Yeah, it definitely was. And and I feel like it, it needs to be said that even if the things that that we wish Obama had implemented, if he really were 
uh, uh, the candidate of hope and change and then eventually the president of hope and change, even if those things were dialed back or or had attempted to be dialed back by Trump subsequently, at least at, at the very least, people could have said of Obama, well, he did try. But we have the legacy of a Democratic president who had a supermajority in Congress who really didn't try to do anything other than to, as you said, Esther, make more of us customers to the capitalist system. Um, And he just happened to do it through health care, which I think is not ironic at all. But, you know, continuing in this vein of of, you know, the U.S. politicians in in these red states um, being backward. Texas Governor uh, Greg Abbott says that his state shouldn't have to provide free public schooling to undocumented students, despite a longstanding Supreme Court decision that says the opposite. Uh, according, according to the Supreme Court in Plyler v. Doe in 1982, um, that struck down a Texas law that you know, that uh, denied state funds for any students that uh, they deemed did not had not lawfully entered the U.S. and it allowed public school districts to deny admission to those children. Plyler v. Doe in 1982 struck down those practices in Texas, making those things illegal. Yes, you do have to provide education, public school education to quote unquote undocumented children. But but I mean, I think this speaks to the fact that the Supreme Court and the the sanctity of Supreme Court decisions that we're always we're always beaten over the head, uh, Esther, about how the Supreme Court is the law of the land. Well, I mean, apparently Greg Abbott doesn't think so. And and I think that calls into question the legitimacy of the Supreme Court when we have governors who are willing to look at codify, you know, a, a ruled law from the Supreme Court and say, yeah, I'm just not going to follow it. Well, I guess that's what's happening right now in so many states that have already enacted these draconian laws, despite the fact that Roe is still the law of the land right now. So you see this trend across the country with not only this latest outrage by Texas, but, you know, what we've been talking about for this past year in terms of now it's abortion, but a few months ago it was voting rights. You know, really, obviously, just trying to keep people from being able to vote. You know, you know when I when I think about this latest uh, move by Abbott in Texas, it just reminds me that the they they want they the Texas in particular has benefited from undocumented workers in the workforce, right? That's right. And on farms, on in many industries, and so they want the labor. But they don't want to support the the worker, right? So they don't want uh, undocumented people to be able to, like, even get a license or undocumented people to be able to vote. They don't want undocumented people, their children, to be educated. So basically, you want to basically raise a generation of people who have no access to uh, democratic rights. They have no access to education. But you want their labor, right? So we really have to look at it as a working class issue. We have to have solidarity with undocumented people in the black community. We can't think of them as competing for jobs or, you know, here, like, you know, living off of the, you know, we can't adopt the right wing 
view of immigrants. We have to understand that they are fellow workers, that their children have a right to be educated, just like ours have a right to be educated in what is a clearly more and more substandard public education system. We have to support teachers. We have to support funding for our schools and all children being able to get not just a good education, but an excellent education. It's just so hypocritical because, you know, they just passed or they're debating these whole bills about competing with China and uh, giving all this money to really to just the corporations so that they can make more money to supposedly compete with China. If you want to compete with China, you better start with your public schools. You better start with educating each and every child that you can so that they can be a thinker, that they can, uh, but they don't want that. They don't even want us to be critical thinkers. They don't even want us to know our real history. So it's just hypocrisy all around, self-defeatism all around. These We have to get these people out of office. We have to get rid of the Supreme Court. <laughs> Now, that's a word right there. Get rid of the Supreme Court. No, let's not expand, put more unelected justices who sit there for a life term, who cannot be recalled, who uh, cannot be voted out, that no one voted for. No, let's not expand the Supreme Court. Let us get rid of a uniquely undemocratic institution in this country that supposedly interprets uh, law that all of us are supposed to follow. But we see throughout history, the Supreme Court just codifies the patriarchal white supremacist capitalist imperialist hegemony that this settler colonial project was built on. And I got to say, with the U.S. death toll as a result of COVID-19, officially reaching one million deaths. Uh, This was just announced on Wednesday. There is no way that this country can compete with China that uh, invests enormous amounts of money in educating and housing and raising the living standards of their people when this country refuses to even provide face masks and hand sanitizer (laughs) for its citizens to protect us and each other against a global pandemic. So we have to, as I've been saying throughout this entire show today, and I think this is the theme of the show always, but it has been brought into sharp relief, certainly from my visit to Cuba. We, my friends on the left, we have to unify around defeating imperialism because that's the only way for humanity to survive. survive. But we're going to leave it there for today. We're out of time. We'll be back tomorrow with a whole new show. Until next time, peace. By any means necessary.